Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swamiliti Namine Namaste Saraswati Devi Gauravani Pracharini Nivishesha Shunyavari Paschatya Desha Tarini It's traditional to start a uh, <clears throat> gathering like this where we talk about uh, topics that come from a sacred domain by offering prayers and establishing a kind of um, atmosphere. And so the chanting is traditional. It's been going on since before recorded time. Pretty much every wisdom culture has a, a kind of chanting, some form of chanting is there, offering of acknowledgement to some greater force than ourselves in the universe. And uh, I see some new friends here this evening. We have some special guests. I would like to introduce you to my stepmom, Rita. Uh, the step, if technically she may be my stepmom, you might say it's a small step. <laughs> so you just call her mom. And my cousin Jennifer, who has been here before as a Jiva Mukti student. So glad to see you with us today. Tamar, it's wonderful having you back after such a long absence. How are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. How's training going? Good. All right, excellent. So it should be. Let's see, anyone else? Robert, yes? You're here for the first time, aren't you? Lovely having you here as well. Thank you for joining us. Wonderful. Anyone else here for the first time? No, everyone else is old time. Okay, great. Uh, anything? Yes, Michael. You talked about your teaching, your scheduled events for Sunday and Parishads. Oh, on um, yes, I have the great pleasure of um, sharing the cushion, so to speak, with um, Lady Ruth Lauer on, uh, was that Sunday, yeah? Sunday at 12 noon? Sunday. Yeah. I think it's yeah. two. Sunday from 12 to 2. Saturday, is it? Yes. Saturday or Sunday? It's in my calendar. <laughs> it's one or the other. I think, think it's Sunday. I think it's Sunday from 12 to 2. Sunday? I think so, yes. And uh, that, that's a, a discussion on the um, uh, guru-shisha, teacher-student relationship, which is central to yoga practice and yoga culture. It's different from attending an academic institution and the relationships that are established between students and teachers in the West. So what are the protocols? What are the responsibilities? What does it mean? What happens if you accept someone as your teacher in the yoga culture? What, what goes on there? What is the significance of that? So that will be on Sunday. Sunday at noon. That's confirmed. Okay. And then the... Uh, Can you record? Will you re be recording that? If I have permission... From Yogeshwar and Lady Ruth, I will record it. And, I think so. and will you put it in the wisdom? Um, I, I, sure, I have no problem with that. Where is it? It's here. Okay. It's here. I guess it'll be in the Krishna room. I'm not in communication with Lady Ruth. Though. And then uh, the Isopanishad, uh, of the, there are um, 18 um, um, Puranas and 108 Upanishads. These are the uh, you might say the, the headlines of the Sanskrit Vedic texts. And of those 108 Upanishads, 
certain among them are prominent. The Isa Upanishad is actually a very short work. It's only 18 verses, but it's considered truly the, the heart and soul and the core of the Upanishadic teachings, which are part of the original Shruti texts. Does anyone remember the difference between Shruti and Smriti? Those of you who have been coming here for a while, let's see if we can test your vocabulary. Shruti is what? What is the Shruti text? Of course, we all know that one. That is the, those are considered divinely revealed. Shruti means heard, what is directly heard. Smriti, which means those texts that are remembered, would be considered the commentaries. So later works that are elaborations and expansions upon the original Sanskrit Shruti texts. Is Upanishad is part of the Upanishadic Shruti texts and therefore considered oldest of the Sanskrit works. And um, it's an extraordinary work. So there'll be three classes on Is Upanishad the last two Saturdays in January and the first Saturday in February. And I think that's at 6 o'clock in the evening. Yes, And that tomorrow gets the credit for that. <laughs> we record everything. It's Saturday, yes. Saturday experience. How did I do, Michael? Is that good? Okay. Now we can move on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we're in the fourth chapter. Uh, first of all, does anyone have anything particular they'd like to report on? Anything particularly good or bad that happened this week that you think we should know about? This is, you know, it's a safe environment other than the thousand people who listen to the podcast. You're, you know, we're off the record. So, yes. Can I, may I ask a question of something you said last week? Mm-hmm. You said something about satsang came up, the word satsang, and you were saying sat came from sadhu. Well, well the other way around, sadhu, the root of sadhu is sat. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. But could you just say that just very briefly again? Like, does sadhu also mean truth or means a, a person who is established in truth? One who has given oneself over to the service or pursuit of truth is called a sadhu. Now, that's not just a, an arbitrary rubber stamp title. To be considered a true sadhu, uh, there are behavioral symptoms, if you will, minimums, uh, just as a mahatma is another word that you know sometimes is given to someone because they're rich or powerful or influential. The real Mahatma, that's described in Bhagavad Gita, Sa Mahatma Sudurlaba, one who knows, Bahunam Janmanante Gyanavan Mam Prapadjate Vasudeva Sarvamiti, Sa Mahatma. What is a Mahatma? Vasudeva Sarvamiti, one who knows that Vasudev, the Supreme, is all, that everything is the energy of the divine Supreme Being. That's a Mahatma. So there are standards for a sadhu. Now satsang, which is keeping good company, basically. You know, watch out for, you know, watch who you pick for friends is the basic message there. You know, there's a saying in French, Dites-moi qui sont vos amis, je vous dirai qui vous êtes. Tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you all about you. Careful with company. That's, that's the reason why there are retreats. That's the reason why there are pilgrimages. That's the reason why we have Jiva Mukti and our weekly gatherings is to have good company. 
you, it's described that the reason you go on pilgrimage to the holy places is not to bathe in a river. It's not to go bathe in the Ganges. It's to meet the saintly, devoted souls who take up residence in those holy places. That's the real pilgrimage. And a sadhu is considered a walking place of pilgrimage. If you have the company of an enlightened person, someone who has very deep spiritual realization, that's like being on a pilgrimage. And interestingly, even though the chanting is considered the highest spiritual practice, keeping satsang is considered even higher. If you're practicing yoga, you're chanting Hare Krishna, whatever your practice may be, if you don't have good company, after a while you might just give up and go away. Well, I don't really feel like doing it anymore. It's kind of, I've had enough of it. I'm, you know, I want to try something else now. Keeping good company will reinforce the importance of your practice and will also give you an opportunity to share with other people whom you trust what are the obstacles you're encountering. I had a little gathering up at my place just this past Sunday for that very reason. You know, to just be close with people who are on the path with you, who get it. They get you. They understand what you're doing. And, and they're sympathetic to <laughs> what you have to go through with your family or <laughs> whatever the, the challenge may be. So, so satsang is the highest practice. It's the most important um, tool in your devotional first aid kit. All right. Any other questions from last week? All right. This is a very important chapter. Um, we've talked about this before. Here, really, Krishna, for the first time in this fourth out of 18 chapters of the Gita, he's beginning to describe himself a little bit more uh, bluntly, if you will. You don't just come out and reveal yourself to anybody right away. You don't do that. You, you have to first get to know someone. You know, can you trust this person? Maybe there's some information about yourself that you don't want to share. You know, you don't want to give that to just anybody. You're not going to just... Why not? Why would you not tell something private about yourself to just anyone? What are the risks in that? What might they do with that knowledge? Yeah, they could betray you. They could use it against you. They can come back to hurt you somehow. You don't want everybody to know it. Maybe they're gossips and they go around telling everybody. And they might, and not knowing the person you're talking to, they might not receive it in the way you intend to. Oh, very nice. Well said. You want to be sure... In the, in the Vaishnav tradition, the devotional tradition of India, there are three levels of friendship. Thank you for bringing this up. With people who are not as learned as you are, who don't have as deep a psychological and philosophical understanding of the spiritual path, who are more beginners than yourself. To that group of people, you give good instruction. You mentor them. You offer them assistance, guidance. With people who are on an, a par with you, who are on a spiritual equivalent to where you are in your spiritual practice, that's where you make friends. You make friends who are 
sharing that, that same stage of spiritual growth. And to those who are more advanced than you, you offer service, you ask questions, take instruction, you seek guidance from them. So those are the three levels. You don't want to reveal your heart to someone who has not come to the place where you are spiritually. They won't understand what you're talking about. They could misuse it, misinterpret it. So all, for all kinds of reasons, you make friends among a group. Just like here, we're all together here. We've been together for a long time. This is a group of peers. At least theoretically, we should be capable of speaking our minds and saying, well, you know, I'm encountering this obstacle here. You know, and I don't quite know what to do with this. Has anyone got any ideas? That's Sangha. That's, that's what we should be doing here. But how do you know if someone isn't spiritually up to you if you don't, like, at, at your level? It seems divisive to me, in a way. Well, like, there are what you, get to, you get to know people. You spend time together. Right. You, know, you share experiences, right. you know, coming to classes like this. Uh, it's not even so much a class as it's a discussion. Yeah. You know? We have, um, as a kind of a practice, we don't always do it, I guess, but often we do, we'll save time at the end just for people to grab their vegan treat and sit down next to someone they haven't talked to before and just introduce yourself. So that's a part of, you know, uh, getting to know you. That's what we do. Okay. So in this fourth chapter, Krishna is beginning to describe himself more candidly than he has in the first three chapters of the Gita. In the first chapter, we have a setting of the scene where the battle is taking place and we're learning who are the warriors on both sides, what's the dynamic between the generals and the leading warriors in this uh, massive uh, war that's about to take place. And then Arjuna's dilemma at the end of the, fourth cha- of the first chapter where he sees on the other side family and friends and he does not want to fight. Second chapter where he says, I'm, I'm, I'm asking now, please, please give me direction. Now I'm your shishya. Now I'm your disciple. They knew each other from childhood, but Arjuna asks Krishna, let's put aside our friendly talks. Now please, moving from this relationship of peers to the relationship of guru and disciple, guru and shishya, so that there can be an imparting of knowledge. So there's a shift in the rasa, there's a shift in the relationship there. And then all of second chapter is pretty much dedicated to this one point, which we're going to talk about today in this fourth chapter verse, namely the difference between the body and the soul, the vehicle and the engine that drives the vehicle. That's lesson 101, not only of Bhagavad Gita, but of all spiritual life, is to understand the difference between your body and yourself. The self does not change. We've we've gone through these examples many many times. It's worth reiterating them. You can recall when you were in your child's body. You can remember that. You have memories of when you were a child. You remember playing. You were some other place. You were doing something. And sometimes we do this as a guided meditation. We close our eyes and we go back to that time in our life when we were younger. And we'll literally re-envision where we were 
as a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. Now you come forward. Where were you when you were a youth? 10, 12, 14 years old. Right? That's a whole different set of environment, circumstances, um, intellectual and cultural equipment. Now move forward again to age 21, let's say. Now you have a whole other set of experiences. Your body has changed approximately every six or seven years. The molecular structure, when you wash your hands, that's all dead skin floating away. Everything is changing. The body is constantly changing. Constantly, constantly changing. So if you're 28 years old, you've reincarnated four times already in this life. You remember where you were. You remember being in that childhood body, in that youth body, in that adolescent or adult body. And by the time you get to my age, you've transmigrated, you know, who knows how many times. <laughs> and you have a whole lot of other experiences to remember. And we were talking about this uh, over dinner, that you look back on your life and it seems like a dream. But you were there. Just as this entire life can seem like a dream when you leave this body and take another body. Under the right circumstances, there can be past life recall. It's not frequent. It's not common. But it is possible. I, almost, I went looking for a video clip that I had from a CBS News report of a young boy who remembered being a uh, fighter pilot in the Korean War. Did I play that here before? Uh, I'll have to find it. It was a video uh, from CBS News of a young boy who developed this fascination with fighter planes when he was quite young. He would collect them and he was asked his, folk, his mom and dad to buy him. Oh, I want that one. And, and uh, that's a such and such plane. And, you know, his parents are saying, how does he know that? You know? And... Um, they think maybe from watching television or something, but then his mom would say, oh, look, uh, here's a new plane that you don't have. And he'd look under the pillow, oh, look, there's the bomb drop. What's that? Well, that's the, that's the bomb bay door that opens up when the drop, well, how did he know? He didn't. So eventually, there was enough information that they were able to identify a Korean War pilot who was in combat and who was shot down and the boy said to his mom you know uh, he woke up with a nightmare he said you know fire in the hole fire in the hole his mom said what fire it's on fire somebody I got shot and his mom said who shot you the Koreans <laughs> so the information came out eventually and they found the name of the pilot whom this young man purportedly knew or might have been in a previous life. And the father, who was a complete skeptic initially, after too much information that could be just racked up to watching television or something, decided that this must have been his son's previous life. And that kind of recall can happen under certain circumstances. Again, it's unusual because the shock of leaving the body and coming into a new body, and then, again, the shock of birth, which is not a pleasant experience for the soul in that infant, in that baby's shape, in that baby body. It's not a pleasant thing. 
So usually a memory, memories of past lives have been suppressed or erased altogether. But we remember being even in this lifetime in many other bodies. So that's second chapter. Third chapter, Krishna is talking to Arjuna about the need to engage in karma yoga, the need to take up whatever responsibilities we have uh, without selfish intent. And there's a whole discussion that ensues there about when to take up action and when to renounce action. And we had a whole session, we've had many discussions about when do you leave a situation and when do you stick it out? When is it more important for you to go inside the experience of something that may be very difficult or very unpleasant to find, if you will, to find Krishna there, to find the deeper meaning of what this experience of life holds for me and when higher discernment says the time has come to leave this, the time has come to move away from this. And that discerning ability is a very, very uh, refined skill and it's a very, very important one in material life as well as in spiritual life. You have to know when to move away from a harmful situation or when you can go farther into it and affect change. So that's the third chapter, Gita. Now we're in the fourth chapter where Krishna begins by describing for Arjuna that this knowledge that I'm describing for you, this is not the first time I'm imparting this. This came in at the dawn of time. The revealed texts enter the universe as a kind of um, blueprint or uh, uh, um, user's guide <laughs> to living in the material world without becoming too entangled in it. Uh, and then uh, Arjuna, again somewhat skeptical, says to him, how is this that you say you describe this knowledge of the dawn of time to the sun god? The sun god is much older than you are. You and I are contemporaries we're related by marriage. How can you say that you taught this at the dawn of the universe? I don't remember any of that. So now we're at this verse, which we will chant together. Uh, this is on chip page 188, if you have the uh, Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada edition of the Gita. And we'll use the, the standard um, chapter, what, what text? chapter 4, text 6. Uh, so I'll chant one line and then we'll repeat the line together Ajopi san avyayatma hold on is that the verse I'm sorry hold on yes Ajopi san avyayatma Try that with me. Ajopi san avyayatma Bhutanam ishwaropi san Bhutanam ishwaropi san Prakritim svamadishtaya Prakritim svamadishtaya Sambhavami atma mayaya Sambhavami atma mayaya 
Give it a try. Karen? No, that was a big no right there. Okay. Um, Aja, unborn, api, although, san, being so, avyaya, without deterioration. Atma, this, this word is a, an important word in your vocabulary. Atma can mean many things. Uh, atma can mean the body, it can mean the mind, it can mean the senses, it can mean consciousness. It has many, many different uh, definitions. So according to the context, we can understand, in this case, Atma, the word is being used to describe body. Bhutanam, of those who are born. Ishwara, the Supreme Lord. Api, although, San being so. Prakritim, in the transcendental form. Svam, of myself. Adishtaya, being so situated. Sambhavami, I do incarnate Atma Mayaya by my internal energy. Maya means mind. Several times in the Gita, Krishna describes that this uh, material energy is uh, uh, Atma Maya. This is my Maya. This material energy is also divine. The world is divine. In one sense, everything is spiritual. If you approach it in that way, and if you respect everything in that way, then everything is spiritual. The practice of yoga is really just to resuscitate the spiritual potential within everything. So that's what Krishna is indicating here by saying, this maya, this is my maya, this material energy is also spiritual if it's properly engaged. Translation of this sixth verse, although I am unborn and my transcendental body never deteriorates and although I am the Lord of all living entities, I still appear in every millennium in my original transcendental form. Okay, now, there are two, uh, there are many points being raised in this verse. There are two principal points being raised. One is what we've been discussing about, namely the eternality of the self, that the self does not die with the body. And the other is Krishna's identity and his coming into the world and how that differs from our being born. So, there's uh, the significance of this section of the fourth chapter, apart from the verses themselves, 
is that what Krishna is doing is establishing the way spiritual knowledge arrives in the world. There are two different ways of acquiring knowledge. One is aroha, pantha. We've talked about this before. Aroha, pantha means the process of, uh, if you will, ascending knowledge through our own abilities, our own intellectual acumen, research, study, observation. We come to conclusions about the nature of the world, ourselves, and our relationship with the universe around us. Avaroha Pantha is the Bhagavad Gita's method, which is that certain categories of knowledge cannot be accessed through our own efforts. They have to be received through a descending process, which is to say, from this initial point of entry into the universe at the dawn of time, that knowledge of what lies beyond our sensory perception is passed down in the parampara, which is the discussion on Sunday. The guru-disciple relationship is dependent on a teacher having the proper credentials. You don't want to take instruction from just anybody. Where are your degrees? Where did you study? Where did you get your knowledge from? There are authorized, recognized schools called parampara, or sometimes also known as the disciplic line, uh, that is a kind of reassurance that what you're learning is not concocted or invented, that it has pedigree, that it comes through a disciplic line. What kind of knowledge can we not access on our own ability? Well, essentially, anything that lies outside our sensory or intellectual perception. For example, and this I credit my brother with teaching me, there's something called the Planck length, which is pretty much the smallest dimension that one can uh, encounter on a subatomic particle level, beyond which there's no possible way to calculate. Uh, we enter at that state a realm of smallness, so small, that even the attempt to understand what goes on down there uh, changes its nature. This is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that you cannot observe a particle's uh, position as well as its spin. By just trying to observe it, you have to have enough light reflecting into your eye to be able to observe anything. And the amount of light that you need to observe something is enough to change the position or the speed or the spin of a particle, a subatomic particle. So you reach a point where smallness becomes so small, it's impossible to know what's going on. So the deeper we go down into the heart of matter, the less clear things become. The more fuzzy they become. It's called quantum jitters. The, the, the fuzzier things become. And the same is true on, a, on, on the large scale, as with the small scale, so with the large scale. Things beyond a certain point become unattainable. We can't know what goes on at a, beyond a certain point in the large as well as the small. So our, our sensory perceptions are limited. Our intellectual perception is also limited. We can achieve a certain degree of insight into the nature of reality through intellectual conjecture speculation, uh, research and examination and weighing of different ideas. But when you reach a certain point, 
you leave behind research, conjecture, intellect, speculation, and you enter the realm, the realm of what? What lies beyond the intellect? What? Take a wild guess. Well, let's, let's talk about less theistic language. What lies beyond intellect? What, what, what happens when you have a realization of your life and the world around you? How does that express itself? Feeling. In feeling. In feeling. And how do feelings come out? What are the ways that we express something that's so moving that it evokes feelings in us? How does that come out? What are some of the ways that those profound feelings emerge? Words. Freedom, words, song, song. okay, Smart. poetry, here we go. Okay, now we're getting there. You leave the cognitive realm and you went to the emotive uh, experiential realm, which is why so often the truly deep thinkers are also musicians or, or painters. They, they end up expressing themselves in some other form. Einstein played violin. You know, and usually it was Mozart. You know, it wasn't you know Tchaikovsky. <laughs> so you leave the realm of research and you enter the realm of emotion, of poetry, of music, of dance. I remember one great teacher in the Vaishnava lineage describing one time that the highest truth is dancing. <laughs> now, how would that be? How is the highest truth dancing? Well, of course, for Vaishnavas, highest truth means understanding that there is the self that does not die. There is the soul within the body that keeps the body active, right? that goes someplace else at the moment of death. And there is also that paramatma. There is that supreme self, the object of ultimate love, and when you come to the point of understanding that behind things there's a personality, that energy does not exist in an impersonal state as some kind of cosmic mystery, but that behind that grand, beautiful, magnificent creation, there's a grand, magnificent, beautiful personality that's such an inspiration that it comes out as poetry. All the great Vaishnava acharyas, the great teachers, were not only scholars, they were also poets. I mean, my, my teacher Prabhupada wrote volumes of poetry, volumes and volumes of poetry. <coughs> I remember uh, one poem. Did I tell you this story uh, when I went to Prabhupada and gave him a book of poems by Chandidas and Vidyapati? Did I tell you that story? What? <laughs> I went to um, the UNESCO office in Paris. This is back in the early 70s. Uh, and uh, the officer in charge of representative works there, different cultures, gave me a gift, which was a book of poems by Chandidas, Chandidas and Vidyapati. I didn't tell you this story? Yeah. Chandidas and Vidyapati were very elevated poets. They were themselves uh, realized Krishna bhaktas, Krishna devotees. And they wrote in the 16th century. Uh, they were contemporaries of Chaitanya, who brought the Krishna chanting into public. And uh, their poetry is all about the most ecstatic form of the soul's expression of love for God. 
Madhurya Rasa, the, the love of Radha and Krishna, the love of the gopis, that very, very intimate expression of what is sometimes described as conjugal love for God, that your affection becomes so intense that you give yourself completely over. It's there in the poems of Rumi. It's there in the Song of Songs. It's there in many different traditions. In the, in the, in the Sanskrit text, you'll find it in the, the Rasa Lila and the 10th division of the Bhagavat Purana. So I brought this book of poems back to my teacher, and he read it for a while, and he said, where did you get this? <laughs> and I explained I had gone to the UN Office of Education and Culture, and he said, you know, we have to be very careful. You know, people aren't going to understand this. This is a very, very exalted poetry. It's really meant for the Paramhamsas. Now, Paramhamsa means, the, a hamsa is a swan. <laughs> the, the very, very great, truly realized bhaktas, or devotees of God, are compared to swans. Now, why are they compared to swans? They're compared to swans because the swan has this extraordinary, elegant ability to extract from a combination of milk and water the milk and leave the water behind. How does a swan do that? In the saliva of swans, there's a chemical that curdles milk. So while they may be drinking a combination of milk and water, that chemical uh, 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 element will curdle the milk so they can extract the milk from the water. The great souls walk through this world with an ability to extract the best from every moment, from every experience. So they're compared to swans. Paramhansa, supreme swans. So Prabhupada was saying that these poems, these are not for ordinary people. These poems are for very advanced yogis who can understand these intimate affairs that Krishna and his greatest devotees engage in. And he said, listen to this poem, for example, and he read me the following poem. He said, harshness at home hurts me like a burn. How can I bear to be a girl in another's power? It's the sickness of love that has been my disease, and now it is the cure that kills me. He said, now, that, this is a married girl whom Chandidas is writing about, and that other power is Krishna. So she's describing how greater than her love for her husband is her love for Krishna. And, and yet he's far away. So this harshness at home, meaning in Krishna's absence, hurts me like a burn. How long can I bear this? Right? I'm, I'm so much in love with Krishna that it... That it it's, 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 it's killing me. Now, we read some of her poetry last year. Huh? We read some of her poetry last year. In the class on Vaishnava poetry. So he says, um, now, we condemn um, uh, wanton sex. He says, we, our, our policy is that sex should happen between life partners, you know, and not just with anyone. But if people were to read these poems, they would think that we're hypocrites, because this is a young woman who's married. She's not married to Krishna. She's married to someone else. And then he said, so where's the great soul? Where's the Paramahamsa who can understand such poetry? Now, I made the mistake of saying, well, there's only you, Prabhupada. Now, it was a mistake because I didn't realize at that time, I had only just met him, that he, he couldn't stand any kind of praise. He, it, was, it was painful for him. 
to hear himself praised. Uh, so he bowed his head like this and he shook it and put his hand up and says, I'm not, I'm not that great. I'm not that great. And that is a symptom of true enlightenment. I was with a friend just a few days ago who is close with the conductor David Amram. You might have heard his name. Uh, David's a wonderful, beautiful composer, conductor, who does a lot of charity work. And uh, he had just gotten an award for something he'd done, I think, just after Hurricane Sandy. He had done some benefit. And um, he said he, his acceptance speech was, you know, I don't really deserve this, but I'll accept it on behalf of the really great composers and conductors who have been my inspiration in my life. That's, that's an enlightened position. That's an enlightened position. A real teacher, a real guru, understands these verses from the fourth chapter, evam param para praptam, where the knowledge that we're receiving is not ours. We haven't come across this and made some great discovery. We're passing along wisdom that has always been there. And therefore, the, the credit for that needs to be passed along as well to those who deserve it, to my guru who presents it to his guru before him and all the way up to Krishna. That humility is critical in developing spiritual life. So here, Krishna is describing these two things. One, on the one hand, the eternality of the soul and uh, his role here, he says, uh, my body does not deteriorate. When I come into the world, people make the mistake of thinking that I assume this body, that there's some higher truth that is speaking through me. Now, there's a whole history here. I won't, I won't take up a lot of time with it, but you need to understand a little bit of what the background is here. Most yoga instruction follows from the Shankarite schools which teach a form of philosophy known as Advaita Vedanta. It's also called Mayavada. And the Mayavada school says that everything is made of Brahman. Everything is energy. And we ourselves are one with that energy of creation. And that through your yoga or contemplative practice or meditation or study, however you come to understand your true nature, at that moment of achieving your epiphany, your enlightenment, you shed the sense of individuality and you merge back into the totality of energy from which you have come. Basically, you become God. You become everything. <laughs> there are, there's a reason why Shankara in the 6th, 7th century presented the Advaita Vedanta teachings. It had a particular purpose and it had to do with that moment in history. Prior to Shankara, there was the predominant religion in India was Buddhism. And the Buddhist religion had gained a foothold when the Buddha appeared about 2,500 years ago in order to counteract a misinterpretation of the Vedic texts. In, in the Karmakanda section of the Vedic texts, the texts that deal with rituals and sacrifices, there are prescriptions that allow for sacrificing animals, animal sacrifice. 
but only by qualified Brahmins who can regenerate the life of that animal. There are no such Brahmins around today. Nobody can understand how to recite the mantras so effectively that an old animal will emerge from the sacrificial fire in a young animal's body. That doesn't happen today. There's a festival in India called Kumbha Mela. Have you heard of Kumbha Mela? It takes place every... There's one every year and there's one every 12 years. Uh, and in that festival, that's when the yogis come down from the mountains. That's when you'll see the 300, 400-year-old yogis showing up at this confluence of these three rivers, at Allahabad, also called Prayag, of the uh, Ganges, the, Mu the Yamuna, and the Saraswati rivers. They will bathe in those rivers. And Prabhupada, I haven't seen it, but Prabhupada talked about seeing um, a yogi uh, submerged, submerging himself in one place of the river and coming up in a different river or coming out with a renewed youthful body. Uh, there are ways to do that through manipulation of airs within the body. You can regenerate the cells and the, the metabolic system and you can... You know, Isn't it look. this year? Huh? Oh, isn't this hugger cycle this year? I, uh, I'm not sure. So th there is prescription in the Vedas for qualified Brahmins, priests, to recite the mantras as a way of regenerating the life. On the pretext of those Karmakanda prescriptions, there had been a proliferation of slaughterhouses and of um, animal killing. The Buddha appeared in order to put an end to the slaughter. Out of his compassion, he appeared and taught ahimsa, you know, non-violence, non-harm, do no harm. And he said, set aside these Vedas. You do not need these texts. Follow me and the path of ahimsa, non-violence. And he did, he succeeded, especially once Emperor Ashok converted to Buddhism, uh, essentially, Buddha's mission was accomplished. It became state-sponsored. You want a religion to become popular, get the government to sponsor it. So it, he eliminated the animal slaughter that was going on, regenerated the Brahminical culture, which had also lost its purchase during the Buddhist period. But here was this dilemma that now the Vedas had lost their agency. They'd lost their authority. Shankara appeared to teach crypto-Buddhism, if you will, a kind of hidden Buddhism, that said, you can continue to accept this notion of ahimsa, nonviolence, but now it's here, it's confirmed in the Vedas. So he established the Vedic texts by taking, if you will, this small step. The Buddhist philosophy is shunyava, shunyata. Shunyata means that when you achieve realization, consciousness breaks down, everything ceases. Nirvishesh, which is the Advaita Vedanta goal of yoga, says you don't exactly cease existing, you become all of existence. So there was this kind of a small step back toward establishing the Vedic authority. Shankara's philosophy was that somehow or other, we, God, are now in ignorance. For some reason, God has now taken on a physical body and we're enjoying our lila, <laughs> our pastimes in the material world. 
But when you come to full realization of your actual spiritual identity, that illusion of being different, of being an individual, will fall away. And you will again realize your identity as one with everything. There are inconsistencies here. How is it possible that ignorance has overcome God? That's one, one inconsistency. There are other inconsistencies as well. How can Brahman, or spirit, which is by nature indestructible, be cut up into little pieces? If we are individual souls now, we must be eternally individual souls. There cannot have been some time in cosmic history when Brahman, indestructible, that's there in the second chapter, Nayan, Bhutva, it's all there in the second chapter. How is it possible that the indestructible now became cut up into little pieces and became individual souls? And then at some time in the future, those individual pieces will now merge again and to become the totality. If you're separate, if you're an individual now, you're an individual eternally. Shankara succeeded in his mission by laying a path which was then, if you will, completed by Chaitanya in Bengal in the 16th century who brought the philosophy of Achintya Beda Beda Tattva into prominence which says we are simultaneously one and different. We are one in quality with Krishna, with Brahman, but quantitatively we are small. We're like sparks in the fire. The fire is great, the spark is small. Of the same quality, but you cannot argue that the spark is of the same quantity as the vast fire. So Krishna is describing that when I come into this world, I don't assume a body the way souls do. My body is eternal. He is, later in the Gita, it describes, I am the source of that Brahman energy. So there are philosophical points to be uh, discussed uh, in this verse, as well as its position in the Gita, representing the parampara succession, which brings this knowledge into the world. So I'm going to stop there. That's quite enough. Thank you very much. (laughs) And let's open this up for some discussion. This is important stuff to know. This is not incidental. You know, we talk a lot about how yoga without philosophy is only half the game. Yeah. Um, I think I'm not. I don't know an exact figure, but it seems to me there are teachers nowadays teaching yoga who don't have any lineage who. If you ask them, where are your degrees, where are your diplomas, they're just like, well, well, I just, you know, I did, I took some classes, I went to a lot of workshops. Is that, um, I mean, I don't know, it's just something I thought of, I don't, it's not exactly a question, but, I mean, Sharon and David always stress, you know, for us in the Jivamukti tradition, that lineage is very important, so I don't, I feel that connection. But would it be considered, from your perspective, incorrect, or I don't know if that's the right word, to be teaching yoga if you don't have a lineage? Well, I think we need to make a distinction between (laughs) yoga as it's entered into American culture and the high tradition of yoga. Mm -hmm. The popular yoga, which is what pretty much everybody knows is the Hatha and Ashtanga 
physical yoga. For the most part, it's physical yoga. And there are some very intuitive, wonderful yoga teachers who are gifted at teaching the physical yoga. And there's no reason to denigrate that or to minimize its value. I mean, that's, that's an extraordinarily important part of coming to the deeper dimensions of yoga is being inspired by a good teacher. You can start from any number of places. Where we run into, a, I think, what you're pointing at is when someone presents herself or himself as a guru. Now, that's different from a yoga instructor. Those are two very different things. You can be a very good yoga instructor without having, to have res- without having received initiation into one of the authorized lineages. But to become a guru, which, which is why we're having this discussion on Sunday, it's a very, very different thing. You know, guru, that's, a, that's a formal relationship where the, the guru actually assumes responsibility for the student's life and agrees to liberate the student from repeated birth and death in the, world, in the material world. And the disciple agrees to embrace the guru's teachings as guidelines for life. That's, you don't hear that kind of stuff when you go for a yoga class. So, you know, I, I, I agree with you if, if what you're saying is, uh, should it not be made clear that there's a distinction? I would agree, I would certainly agree with that. Yeah, in fact, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a worthy campaign to get philosophy from an authorized lineage, a lineage included in teacher certification. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm a little, myself personally, I'm a little uncomfortable with people becoming yoga instructors who have not received proper training in the yoga philosophy. You're only really serving your students to a certain extent, but not fully. So. Oh, sure. Sure, absolutely. Um, it becomes a little bit trickier, however, in yoga culture, because your science teacher is not going to promise to liberate you from repeated birth and death in the material world. <laughs> You know, there, there's, it's a very, very different kind of relationship there. But, yeah, sure. You, you know, knowledge needs to have gravitas, needs to have some weight, needs to come from someplace. Sure. But that's an ongoing state. It's not just something you learn, you know, right before you know. Oh, absolutely. Sure. No, this is a living... Bhagavad Gita is a living, breathing text. It is not inert words on a page. This knowledge, as opposed to academic knowledge, is constantly breathing, constantly evolving, constantly adapting to the circumstances around it. That's why you can take one verse from the Bhagavad Gita and study it over and over and over and over again. It's always unfolding and revealing itself. As you develop spiritually, this knowledge reveals itself to you more and more 
and more and more. Uh, is there like, um, can you, is there a, There's no particular time of year. Uh, there's a time of day. You know, morning hours are considered more productive for spiritual practice and study. When you're fresh, and you know, you kind of hit the ground running that way. You start your day with a spiritual infusion. But you can just read wherever, whatever. It should be read chronologically. Yes. For example, you know, I permit myself to talk with you about Krishna and those very personal stories of Krishna and the cowherd women and his friends, and you know, I talk with you about that. But traditionally, we would not be discussing the tenth canto of the Bhagavad Purana until we had first discussed all nine previous cantos that describes the creation of the material world the different stages of time and the interaction of material elements, all of that stuff is preliminary to that postgraduate understanding of the source of that creation. Right? So, any other questions or thoughts? If not, um, Michael, do you want to do RT? All right, we, we, uh, for those of you who may not know, we try to have an RT ceremony at the end of each of our little gatherings here and then we're going to do what I talked about earlier which is you're going to grab a cookie or a cupcake whatever they are what do we have here brownies and cashew chews brownies and cashew chews so you'll grab your brownie and um, find someone you don't know and just plunk yourself down and, uh, and chat for a while so the RT ceremony is an offering of the elements the Mahabhuta back to the source of those elements. It's a lovely, elegant little way of acknowledging uh, Krishna uh, as the source of the teachings that we're discussing here. So would you join me please up by the, up by the altar and we'll have the artsy ceremony. And the recording is um, George Harrison's recording of the prayers of Brahma. Okay.
Coming exterminator, that's 